come to you now as the God who speaks. By your life-giving word, you brought all things into being, and all things are upheld, even our lives, by the word of your power. And your word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. And Father, we ask that now as we open up your word, that you would once again speak to us and draw our hearts closer to yourself and open our eyes so that we might see the living word, namely your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So this is uh, Veterans Day weekend. And I just wanted to ask, are there any vets in the house? Just anyone uh, vets? Can we, um, yeah. So it's kind of cool today, uh, as it is Veterans Day weekend, we actually are going to be looking at a story in the Bible of a well-decorated vet, uh, a war hero who encounters God. And it's kind of interesting because in a lot of ancient literature, you find these stories of war heroes, and usually they are, you know, slaying some giant or uh, taking some new hill or conquering some village or something like that, doing some magnificent feats in battle. And so we read about them uh, throughout the ancient literature. But in our text, we read about a war hero, uh, a veteran, not because the author wants to draw attention to uh, his exploits in battle. Rather, we're, we're reading together today about a story of a vet who had an encounter with the gracious healing presence of God and who was transformed in that encounter. And so as we look at the story today, uh, it has great application, not just for those who might be vets among us, but this story has application for anybody who feels like in their own life, they could be in need of some spiritual transformation. And in this story, we learn some principles of what what leads to spiritual transformation in our own lives. Now, where we pick up the story, it is now in the time of Elisha, so the mantle has been passed from his, success, or his predecessor, Elijah, and now it's gone to Elisha. I was asking my sister this week, who is a Hebrew scholar, how these names should properly be pronounced. And she said, actually, Elijah is Elihu. And then he, she said, Elisha is Elisha. Now, I thought I'm not going to use those words throughout this service because, one, um, Elisha is too close to the name of my wife. I'm married to Alicia, you know? And, uh, and then you would just be, it would bother you because you've heard Elisha your whole life. So that's where we're going to be. But anyway, uh, in chapter four, Elisha has performed a great many miracles. He has supplied oil to a poverty-stricken widow so that she wouldn't be devoured by her creditors. He has given a son to a Shunammite widow who wanted a son but had none. He's raised the dead uh, that, that once that same son died. And then he has purified a pot of stew and fed a few hungry people with food left over. And so Elijah, like his predecessor, is a miracle worker who is an agent of the transforming, life-giving power and presence of God. And now the camera shifts from the land of Israel to one of her neighbors, Syria, and to a general's house in Syria. And we read this. 
Naaman, the commander of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given him victory in Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And so the, the, the general in our text is celebrated by uh, three terms. It says in our text that he was a great man. With, and so with him, we move into the zone of greatness. And he's a mighty man of valor. He's a great warrior. He's something of a national celebrity in the land of Syria because by him, a great battle was won. And, uh, and likely, uh, he, he's, he's held, the text says, in high favor with the king, and likely he has been given a medal of honor uh, by the king. And so here he is. He is a medal of honor winner. He's a national celebrity. Uh, surely he's at home in high places. He has access to seats of power. Uh, by now, he's become accustomed to the perks and the privileges and advantages. And so this is a great man of valor, but the text says there was a problem. And it's a problem on which the whole story turns. And the problem is that the great man was also a leper. He had leprosy. Now, we don't know how he contracted it, uh, but it's serious, even defining. And it was dangerous. It was a despicable disease that threatened to sabotage all that power, all that celebrity, all that social standing that he had worked so hard to achieve. And he's unclean now. He's a leper He's surely persona non grata for all the lively places. He previously had been granted free entrance, and this meant the end. It meant the end of career, end of celebrity, uh, end of influence, end of prestige, the end. He's about to become an invisible nobody. Now, I'm sure, uh, you know, he, he must have wept in the night even as he put on a brave face in public. But here he is, a great man who's also a leper. Now, at this point, a surprising character steps into the narrative. Look what happens next. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him from his leprosy. So the text tells us that on one of their raids, the Syrians had kidnapped a little girl from Israel. That word little girl caught my attention when I was reading this text because I've had four little girls grow up in my house. And when I read about a little girl, I, I think about my own little girls. And we don't know much about this little girl. We don't know how old she was. We don't know how long she had been in Syria. Uh, we don't even know her name. But what we do know is that this was a little girl who had suffered tremendous trauma and pain. Because the text tells us that she had been kidnapped from a village where she lived in Israel, which probably meant that the village was burned to the ground, maybe her parents were killed, and then she was taken off and put in the service of the Syrians. So we don't know much about this girl other than that she was suffering from deep trauma and pain, but we also know this, this little girl was a fighter. You know, I think the real warrior in this text is probably not the general, it's this little girl because she's one of those rare survivors. 
who in the midst of the harshest of circumstances has managed to maintain hope and courage in the face of all of the forces of despair and death around her. And I don't know if you heard in the text, even off the far, in the far off land in Syria, she remembers. She remembers that there is a God in Israel who is at work in a prophet in Israel, who himself is an agent of the healing, transformative power and presence of God among us. And she remembered, and she spoke up, and she said, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. We know that this young girl was not only a courageous survivor, she was also a faithful witness. And she bore witness to her master Naaman about the power of this prophet who was the agent of God's life-giving presence and power. And it just struck me as I was reading this, and this isn't the main point of the sermon, this is just a side point in passing. There is no more faithful witness to the God of Israel than I know in the entire Old Testament than this little girl. This little girl who bears witness to her oppressors, who have done her violence, her very enemies, and what does she long for? She longs for their healing and for their salvation. Here, we are getting a very embodiment in our midst of that command of Jesus, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who use you. And here we see in the life of this little girl, this faithful, strong, bold little girl, what it looks like to be a faithful witness to the saving love of God. It doesn't just, it's not just a witness that we bear with our lips. It's a witness that we embody in our life, in our posture towards our neighbors, towards our friends, but even towards our enemies. And can I just say before we move on that we need more witnesses to the power and love of God like this in our nation today? What we don't need of is any more, we don't need any more scandals from the evangelical church. We don't need any more vitriol and hate and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We've had way, way, way too much of that. What we need are more faithful witnesses who will embody in their posture and in their life and in their love, genuine love that stretches not just to neighbors but even to enemies. So this little girl, she just says, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Now, she's speaking these words to the general's wife. The general's wife hears this. She turns to her husband. She says, honey, this little girl spoke about a prophet in Israel who can heal the leprosy. So look what happens next. So Naaman went in and he told his Lord. He, he goes in to the king. This is a, a general who has access to the seats of power. So he walks into the king's presence and he says, look, uh, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel and the king of Samaria said, well, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing and he brought the letter to the king of Israel which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So uh, Naaman, no doubt when he hears this, 
he thought this is going to be awkward and unusual. Why? Well, because the Syrians and the Israelites were not friends, they were enemies. And so this is like Putin coming to the U.S. Uh, to get medical attention, and he goes to Biden and says, look, can you help a brother out, you know? And uh, it's going to feel awkward and uncomfortable. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes desperation can drive you to do things that you would never ordinarily do, doesn't it? Desperate times call for desperate measures, and this king, or th this, this, this general, is desperate. But he, he, he's going to go well-equipped, you know? Um, first, he's got a letter from the king, because kings only deal with other kings, and moreover, he's taken with him not just his leprosy, but he's going to bring uh, 10,000 talents of silver and uh, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. We don't know if the clothing were just a gift or if this was a general who was used to, you know, being a little bit of a peacock, the life at every party. So he wanted 10 different changes of clothing. I don't know. But, uh, but he's thinking, I'm going to go as a leper, but I'm, not a, I'm no charity case. You know, I've come bearing gifts. I'm prepared to pay well for the best health care available in the land of Israel. And no doubt he's anticipating, you know, a luxurious room and his own, uh, for his, his period of confinement there. But of course, it's, it all turns out to be just a big, upsetting mistake. Because he comes into town with his impressive entourage, you know, the presidential limo, uh, his royal introduction to the Israelite king, and uh, uh, surely he's thinking, you know, if there's a prophet in Israel, he's going to be in the king's court. And so he goes to the palace, he goes to the king, and he's like, king, I've got a letter from the king. And look at the king's response. The king in Israel is appalled. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? He says, look, you know, am I God? Are you serious? Like you, like, you want me to, like, I'm, I'm just a king. You know, kings don't have that kind of power. You know, um, and, and he gets suspicious. You know, at this point, the king of Israel is operating out of what the French postmodern philosopher Paul Ricoeur uh, referred to as the hermeneutic of suspicion you know, drawing upon uh, the, the body of, of teaching from the masters of suspicion, you know, Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. You know, the hermeneutic of suspicion said, look, you know, uh, you know, you got to look below the obvious and the surface level meaning to the hidden motives below the surface. There's always something different going on below the surface. And so when the, when the Syrian general shows up and asks for healing, he's like, I know there's something else going on below the surface. You, you're trying to seek a quarrel with me. You want to start an international incident and give justification for the king of Syria to go drop missiles and bombs on us, aren't you? I know what's really going on. And we wonder, why didn't the king direct the general to the prophet in Israel, Elisha? I mean, if the little girl way off in Syria knew about the prophet who had this kind of healing power, didn't the king have intel enough to know what was going on within his own borders? I mean, didn't he know about the prophet? And I, I don't know, I mean, maybe... 
Maybe he knew and didn't want to do his enemies a favor. Maybe, maybe it's just that when you are a king and you're used to power operating in a certain kind of way, namely political power, earthly power, exercised by those who have money and who, who, who manage the instruments of warfare, when that's the kind of power you know, maybe you just don't really have space in your imagination for a kind of transcendent divine power that can break in and do a new thing in the midst of this old world. We don't know, but for whatever the case, uh, he doesn't send the king to the prophet. But uh, as he's um, there, you know, freaking out, you know, absorbed in this false narrative that he's come here, he's going to start a quarrel with me, and I don't know what's going to happen, how I'm going to do this. While he's in the midst of all of this, you know, uh, catastrophizing in his head, uh, a messenger shows up. And look what happens. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Come on, king. Like, you're, you know, clothes don't grow, grow on trees. Why are you, why did you tear your clothes? Let the, let the man come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So he says, king, get out of your own head and send the leprous general to me and I'll take care of him. And he does. Look what happens next verse. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, look, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And so the general arrives at the modest, you know, dwelling place of the prophet in the little village in which he resides far outside the realm and the circles of royal power. And the black SUVs and the security detail, you know, shows up there. You know, the, the, the villagers are gawking at what's happening there. And uh, the general, though, however, he's got great expectations. He's been thinking about this prophet. And, you know, I mean, he, he took the journey. And he brought the goods. He's got the money. He's got the status, he's got the influence, and if anybody can, can generate a miracle from the prophet, it's going to be the general. And, he, and he's just imagining what it's going to be like when he finally encounters the prophet. And he's kind of thinking about what the prophet's going to look like, and he imagines the prophet coming out, and, and I think he's probably thinking maybe he's going to look something like Gandalf you know, or maybe Qui-Gon Jinn, or maybe Mr. Miyaga, you know, and when he comes out, he's going to, you know, cast some spell and perform some magic and wave his hands and do a little song and dance and something that's going to be dramatic and showy because the general is dramatic and showy. But instead, the door opens, and it's actually not the prophet. You know, it's not Gandalf. It's not Qui-Gon Jinn. It's, it's not Mr. Miyagi. Instead, it's the lowly servant of the prophet, walks out the door, walks up to the general, and he says, look, general, you've obviously been watching way, way too much TV. You know, <laughs> prophetic miracles doesn't work like that here. The prophetic healthcare strategy is a little more low-key. Here's what you need to do. Just go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Easy peasy. 
But, you know, this general is used to pomp and circumstance and people standing to attention and saying, yes, sir, no, sir, no excuse, sir. And so he was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out and stand upon and call upon the Lord his God and wave his hand and do a song and dance over the place and look like Qui-Gon Jinn and cure the, cure the leper and do the force. And, and he's like, are not Abana and Fophar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? This prophet probably hasn't even traveled outside of Israel. He doesn't know about our rivers off in Syria. You want me to get into that dirty river? Could I not wash in them and be cleansed? And he turned and he went away in a rage. He turns away in a rage and he's just muttering to himself, what are you you even thinking? And, you know, we got better rivers back home and washing feels like such a humiliating public act. It's like I'm going to say before everyone, I'm needy. And then I'm in my chariot. I'm in control. I've come here to give my money and to pay for this. And you want me to submit to this word to go get in the water? I'm desperate, but I'm not that desperate. The more he thinks about it, the angrier he gets, and it fires up him up, and, he just, and then he fires up the engine, and he marshals the motorcade and the security detail and the armored van with all the silver and gold, and they, they hop in. They're about ready to get off, and just then, at the last moment, another lowly servant, the third one we meet in the story, steps up, and maybe tentatively, but boldly, he says, look, my father... It's a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He actually said, wash and be clean. The prophet said, you can be clean. Your skin can be made new. That's a great word. Will you not do it? I mean, we traveled all the way out here. I mean, will you not do it? There was a promise attached. You can be made whole. And the general here's this. And in a moment of, of, of self-discovery, almost, of awareness, I can do this. I can get out of the chariot. I can let go, and I can humbly submit to the word of the prophet. And so he went down, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. The same uh, word in Hebrew to describe the little child is the same word to describe that little girl in the land of Syria. It's as if she had a newness in her from the God of Israel that now the general from Syria is experiencing. He has this newness. And, you know, perhaps the first miracle before the skin was ever made new. I think maybe perhaps the first miracle, maybe even the most impressive miracle in this text is that the proud general humbly submits. He's not used to submitting to those who are a social inferior. And yet here in this moment, on this day, he surrenders. He surrenders to the voice outside of himself. He surrenders to the word of the prophet. He surrenders to the God of Israel. And in this act of surrender, get this, he's healed. Listen, the way from leprosy to wholeness is paved with humble submission. And there is no other way from leprosy to wholeness than through the path of humble submission. Didn't Jesus say that 
The one who seeks to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will find it. Well, the text goes on. It says, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, behold, he gets up out of the river, he comes back and he's like, behold, I now know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This man went from being a polytheist to a monotheist. This man went from believing what everybody else in the culture believed to all of a sudden falling down on his face before the true and living God, the creator of all things, the God of Israel. And you know what that is, folks? That's a conversion. So now he says, accept a present from your servant. He says, look, you know, I'd rather have this still be a transaction that allows me to maybe remain in control a little bit. Let me pick up the bill. Uh, let me pay for this one. I'm more comfortable and feel a little bit more in control if we're in the realm of commerce than if we're in the realm of gift and grace. I wonder how many in this room might feel a little bit more comfortable in the realm of commerce than you do in the realm of gift and grace. But the prophet looks at me and says, look, your money is no good here, buddy. He said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. He refused. He says, this is not a transaction you can pay for. This is a free gift of grace. This is how we roll in the land of Israel. This is how the God of Israel operates, not on the principle of law and of merit and of earning, but on the principle of free, unmerited grace. This is where the healing, life-giving work of God takes place. It's in the venue, it's in the realm, it's in the space of grace. Well, look how the story closes off. Naaman said, well, if not, if you're not gonna receive from me, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. He says, look, if you're not gonna take something from me, can I ask one more thing from you? Give me two loads of dirt. I'm gonna take them back to the land of Syria. Why? Uh, so that your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. It's interesting, he says, I'm gonna go, I'm giving up all the idols. I'm no longer gonna worship. I'm gonna worship the true and living God. But when I go back, my new faith is gonna be a little bit complicated in the job I have. I wonder if anybody else feels like your faith is a little bit complicated in the job you have, in the family system you're a part of. You know, conversion can happen in an instance, but working out its implications in the complicated realities of life is the work of our life. So he says, look, when I go back and my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there. He has to lean on my arm because he's a little older, you know. And I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. And when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He says, I don't know how to get out of this, but I'm taking the dirt back and I'm going to worship the true God of Israel. But it's still going to be complicated. It's going to be a little bit compromised. And look at Elijah's response. He says, look, go in peace. And our story ends. And I want to stand back and I just want to say this. Listen, this story 
is a window. It's a window in what happens when an individual is transformed by the grace of God made manifest in the world in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we could say that this story of the healing of the leprous general is our story. You know, um, Elijah, like his predecessor, Elijah, is just a forerunner, just a, a, a foreshadowing of the true and better prophet to come, the true and better agent of the healing, gracious power at work among us, namely Jesus. In other words, Elijah, uh, in the same way that David is a foreshadow of the true and better king, and the Levitical priesthood and Aaron are, is a foreshadowing of the true and better priest, so Elijah is a foreshadowing of the true and better prophet, namely Jesus, who has come among us. And what about leprosy? Leprosy, with all of its unique characteristics, the way it doles the nerves so that you injure yourself, the way it begins below the surface but then erupts in destructive sores, the way it leads to social isolation, all the way back from Leviticus all the way to the Gospels has been a picture of the havoc that sin can reach, wreak on our lives. And so what we're getting in this story is a window into the power of Jesus to bring spiritual transformation and conversion in our lives. Now listen, you might be here and you've been seeking for a while. And maybe you were invited here by a friend. Maybe like that little girl told Naaman the prophet, somebody told you about a power at work that's changed their lives and they've invited you here. Listen, this text gives a window into what conversion entails. And listen, if you've come in here and maybe you've been converted, but conversion isn't just something that needs to happen once. We need to keep on in a process of spiritual transformation. It was Martin Luther who said that repentance is to characterize the whole of human life. Our whole life is a journey of transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And this text gives us a window of what it looks like to have the spirit spiritual, healing, transformative power and grace of God at work in our lives. And I want to suggest that in this story, we see that for spiritual transformation to take place, three shifts need to happen in our life. Number one, we need to experience a shift from self-sufficiency to dependence and need. This is what this man did. You know, he, uh, in, in the land of Syria, he was accomplished he was a mighty warrior. He, he had status. He had access to power. He had affluence and wealth. But none of it was any good against the real thing that was wreaking havoc in his life. And listen, you might have done real well in business. You might have a great college degree. You might have, you know, some stuff going on in your family life or whatever that's good. But there is a problem below the surface in all of our lives, in human life that no matter what you do, you cannot deal with. And the first step toward the path to spiritual transformation is a step where you and I acknowledge that we are needy and dependent people. Or in the words of uh, the first step to Alcoholics Anonymous, we admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and our compulsive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. Change begins here and nowhere else. You need to know your need. But here's the good news. When it comes to the grace of God, all you need is need. The Syrian general had money. You don't need money. 
The Syrian general had those beautiful rivers in Syria. You don't need beautiful rivers in Syria. All you need is need. And he came and he needed to get rid of that chariot and get rid of the entourage, get rid of the security detail and get rid of all of his pride and self-sufficiency and lower himself and say, I am in need. Tim Keller put it like this, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing but the kind of spiritual humility that is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look, at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look not at what we bring. He wants us to look to him. And when we look to him, we see the God who has become flesh and come among us to bear in himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our leprosy, the sores of humanity coming into his own body and afflicting him so that he might bring it to an end so that by his stripes we can be healed. All you need is need, and you can be healed. Second shift, not only from self-sufficiency to need, but we see in the Syrian general a shift from control to surrender. From control to surrender. Uh, Again, you know, the, the Syrian general, you know, there were, there were things in his, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sympathetic. You know, when you've been through the kind of trauma that a general does on the battlefield, when, when you've had so many unknowns around you, when you have so much hardship coming, so much stuff coming at you, you think, I can't be vulnerable and I need to control what I can control. I need to control, I need to self-protect, I need to guard, I'm afraid of what might happen if I don't keep control of him or her or them and I don't keep control of these situations and I'm insecure and I'm afraid and I need to have control. This is the Syrian general. And this is so many of us. We keep holding on to and grasping and clinging to things that make us feel safe and okay. And the Syrian general was clinging to his chariot he was clinging to his rivers. He was clinging to his access to power. He was clinging, and he's just like, look, let go of it all and surrender. The journey to healing involves a step where you let go. You surrender. You said, God, I can't do this, and I know it. I, 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 I'm grasping. I'm trying to hold on because I'm afraid if I don't keep control of the kids or the spouse or of my own life and, and, and my own sexuality and my own you know, possessions and my own, and my own, like, just let go. Spiritual transformation, the, the, the way, the way into spiritual transformation and healing is a way through a valley of surrender and there is no other way. And we have to ask, do I want to maintain control over my life, over my possessions, over my body, over myself, over my kids, over my parents, over all the things, or do we want to release that into the hands of someone who is far better at controlling? The Syrian general released control and he submitted to a voice outside of himself 
a truer and better voice that at first sounded ridiculous and hard, and why would they ask this of me? And yet, when he humbly submitted to that voice, he experienced freedom and healing like he never thought was possible. And friends, it is when you surrender, it's when you let go, you keep releasing it back into the hands of God that you all of a sudden have access in your life to a power that you never thought possible. The way to live is to die. Didn't Jesus say that? C.S. Lewis put it like this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will only find in the long run hatred and loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. The shift from self-sufficiency to need, the shift from control to surrender, and finally the shift from serving self to worshiping God. You know, before he was serving his idols, he was serving his ambitions, his power, and now he's got a new master, and now it's gonna take a whole life to figure out what it looks like to orient my life around this God. Listen, you cannot put God at the center of your life and in your universe if you are not willing to orient and orbit your whole life around him. So the man says, okay, let's go. It's gonna be complicated. There's compromise involved. I don't know fully what this looks like, but I'm gonna take this journey. I'm gonna take this journey. What about us? He invites us, he invites us to reckon with the pockets, those areas of leprosy in our own life. Those things that are dulling our senses, that are, erupt, that are erupting in our own destruction, that are putting us into greater and greater levels of isolation because we fear vulnerability. And he says, give all that up and come, surrender, reckon with your need, and orient your full self around me. And when you do that, you experience grace and healing and transformation.